I Know What You'll Read This Summer. I'm Monique Bowley, and think of me as your reading personal trainer. Forget, you know, 20 sit-ups. Let's have some sit-downs instead. Sit-downs and read. Every week, we're going to be deep diving on one of the best reads of 2015. Across the series, we cover thrillers, prize winners, beautiful reads, stuff you might not have heard of, stuff that you might have seen at the top of the bestseller list and thought, why? Today, it's self-help book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And I'll be honest, when I first started this book, I wanted to stab myself in the eye. But once I coasted past the woo-woo, it was all wow, wow. The author of Eat, Pray, Love has penned a no-bullshit guide on how to make space for more creativity in your life. She argues that anyone can be creative at anything, and her advice on how to stop giving a shit about what people think of you will have you highlighting passages and sticking post-it notes in it, just like I did. If you haven't read it, just a warning that there'll be spoilers ahead, so perhaps come back to us when you have finished it. In the meantime, there might be another book on the list that you have read. You can find the whole list in the series on the Mamma Mia Podcast Network Facebook page. If you have read it, welcome. Feel the magic in the air and let's do this. I think we should all begin by holding hands. Oh, let's feel the, the new age love. What is this hippie doopie stuff? We need to feel the magic in the room. The big magic. I'm inspired. (laughs) I'm Monique Bowley and with me, two members of my real life book club, Joe Lauder and Gabe Lauder. Hello. Hi, Monique. Today we're going to have a chat about the big messages and lessons in this book, the language she delivers it with, the parts we found confusing or strange, our favourite passages, and then finally, whether it's a book we would shelve to read again or shove. But first, Gabe, what's this book about? Okay, so Big Magic is broken into six sections and I'm going to just give you a quick overview of them. So Courage is about uncovering the creative jewels that are hidden within every person. The second section is Enchantment, which is really another word for inspiration. That section's about being receptive and open to an idea. The next section is Permission, which is basically saying you don't need a tertiary education or a master's degree in creative writing or painting or whatnot. Everyone, if they give themselves permission to be creative, can be creative. I've given you permission right now. I think she actually said, here is your permission slip at one point. And then the next section is about persistence, which I think we can all relate to. And it um, resonates with all professions and sectors, which is basically work hard and work consistently And that's the key to a successful career. The next section is about trust. And that's when she returns to this magical thinking about your creativity being a force of its own that wants a relationship with you and it wants you to, to love it back. And you just have to be joyous and be a trickster. Don't be the tormented artist. And then the final section is just an anecdote that I'm was about divinity. Basically, she's saying that art has this sort of zany, sacred force. And she uses an anecdote of um, Balinese dancers. And I guess her message is that because they gave themselves license and um, permission to 
be playful and creative with these dancers and they weren't bound by this tradition of Balinese dance. And she just thinks that there's um, a sort of irony in all that and she wonders if that was not the trickster intention of these um, Balinese priests all along, in a nutshell. (laughs) My opinion of the book really changed as I started reading it. And if you look at my copy now, it's dog-eared, it has post-it notes all through it, it's highlighted. Because when I started reading it, the very first chapter is this idea that ideas float in the ether and that they choose you and you have to be open to them. And honestly, I did so much eye-rolling that I ended up having to put some visine in my eyes. I was so red from all the rolling. I was just like... This woman is so out of touch with every day. I, I can't actually stand it. And I, I have to say I was gagging at that point as oh, well. <laughs> I, just could, I was like, this is the biggest piece of SHRT I've ever read. But then something happened, call it magic, if you will, <laughs> where I started actually realising she's onto something here. Like There is the, those moments of eye-rolling new age hippiness but there's also underlying messages that are really solid there were parts of the book that were really applicable to me and i took those on board and i was fairly dismissive of the parts that i didn't like so much and i've never really read self-help so maybe that's what you do you just kind of work it into your own situation and make it applicable as best you can and dismiss the other parts. So I I really liked the parts about giving yourself courage, well, having courage to allow yourself to be creative and giving yourself that kind of permission to be someone who wants to pursue this. And that's something I, I really enjoyed about this book because I find with myself that... I don't like doing anything unless I'm really good at it. So that, that was really refreshing to kind of read that and think, I can do these things that make me happy for no other reason. The parts I didn't like were it's a bit kind of new age, spiritual, evangelical about, the, you know, these, these ideas, as Gabe was saying, like the ideas that are floating around and you just pluck them out of the air and then they become a novel. And if not, they'll travel on to another novelist and... That's the stuff that I felt I didn't like as much and didn't really, well, it just didn't really resonate with me and I didn't believe it at the end of the day. Mm. I just, I have to say it, that anecdote about her transferring an idea to- A whole book, essentially. A whole book, actually, to Anne Patchett in a kiss. And that was Mm. big magic. At that point, I was like, oh, please. (laughs) Like, I can't take this seriously anymore. You're both so cynical about that idea floating in the ether, and I was too. But as I read further and I read about the kiss, I thought to myself, haven't stories been transferred since Dreamtime, like since Aborigines? Didn't they sort of get stories from the nature, from the world around them, from the environment? Are we too rigid in our thinking and stories originated from the environment around them? Why can't that continue on these days? I just didn't like the way that she um, packaged it and sold it to me All right. as, a, as a magical idea bubble. I found it really surprising that the book is called Big Magic and that's obviously what she's based the whole concept on is this magical creativity. And that's the part I liked the least. I really liked the stuff about getting over your ego and just being, you know, creative for your own happiness. I so agree with you. If I saw this book in a bookshop, I would never read it because it does look really, it looks mystical and magical and fantasy. And it's not at all that. It's really Mm. grounded in some good messages. So, And I found, so it's, as you said, I did the exact same thing. I started it and just thought, 
oh my God, this is why I don't read self-help. This is so, I just, yeah, I, I was eye rolling as well and just thinking it's total crap. And then the middle section I really liked and they were the ones about the courage and permission and persistence. And then it lost me again at the end when I got this idea that she was like, all right, I need to bring this home. I need to bring home the message of big magic and Mm. enchantment. And I'm going to bring in all this stuff again that was just kind of like the icing and the decorative fluff that didn't, it it wasn't really the core of what I enjoyed. Who do you think this book's for? It's, Definitely for the privileged. And um, that's something that I noticed in this book. And also with Eat, Pray, Love, not that I ever got through that, but was that it comes from a really privileged vantage point. And I mean, Eat, Pray, Love, which most of your listeners would be familiar with, is basically a divorcee who goes through some sort of midlife crisis and gets through it by um, eating her way through Italy into another gene size and then sort of splashing money around the third world seeking spiritual enlightenment. And it was it's very sort of first world. So, I mean, it is for the person who's going to seek out a self-help book and is in some way already creatively inclined. I do love how she's reimagined the creative space for people, for everyday people, in that you initially you think, oh, I must I must have to be a poet, a writer, a painter. But the message that everyone is creative, no matter if it's how you get dressed in the morning or if you bake on the weekend or the way you like arguably you could clean your bathroom in a creative way mm-hmm. by Elizabeth Gilbert's rules. So there was a line in there saying that, you know, everyone is creative. It doesn't matter if that, you know, little Johnny in his sugar stupor watching cartoons on the couch or Picasso. And I, I don't quite buy that. You it's know, a very not- American concept, isn't it? Like that kind of anyone can do it. You are all amazing and creative. And I mean, we've got that to an extent, but we've also got the kind of English, you know, there's this proper nature to, well, no, you know, not everyone can be an artist and not everyone can be a painter. And we kind of, it's a tall poppy thing. We kind of cut ourselves down a little bit, whereas Americans are like, you know, you're so fantastic. Yeah, it was. I wish I could do a better accent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I sort of think, I like the idea that there isn't this sort of, artist type that anyone can embrace a creative life whether it's figure skating or making jewelry or making cakes or whatever floats your boat that is creative living and so she doesn't sort of pigeonhole the artist as someone who makes art for a living and that that's their profession and I like that and yet I I thought that was great because really early on I kind of thought to myself this isn't just for a writer or a poet who probably wouldn't read her book anyway. It is for the everyday. And I found, so at the beginning of this year, or sorry, so at the beginning of last year for New Year's, I actually took up pottery classes. And so that's how I really applied it because I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I've done this. I've spent a year doing this and I'm not great at it, but I find it really, I find it really creative, but I find it really calming as well and I'm nowhere near the best. I'm pretty shocking, but I really enjoy it. And I've got... And I also, I like that she does ground it in um, the idea of persistence and that at the end of the day, if you don't have commitment and devotion to your art and you're not ready to put in the time and the sweat and tears, then you won't be successful. And I think that 
when you strip it all down, all the, the sort of big magic and enchantment, the reason that Elizabeth Gilbert is a success is because she has a really strong work ethic. Yeah. She's a slave to the written word, basically. And I get what you were saying about that it's for privileged people, but it's not for elitist people. It's kind of... No, no, not at all. She's very quite anti-elitist about, you know, the arts and you don't need to go to some established arts college or kind of pursue a formal education like that. It's it's for the everyday. Mm. And I thought thought that was really interesting. And she calls out that romanticised notion of the tormented artist... And, and the, the whole concept says, of like kill your darlings as well and you're wrestling with this creativity mm. and it it's going to, yeah, you know, overthrow you at some point. That bit didn't sit well with me. It didn't. And we'll get yeah. to that a bit later on. But first I want to go back to the style that this book is written in. I find it was very pacey but also very sparse. I felt like there was room for contemplation throughout her chapters and through her words, whether it was the shorter sentences that she used, just really simple writing, simple and clean was how I felt it came across. And I really, I wonder if she did that on purpose because I have read Eat, Pray, Love and that seemed certainly more, I don't know, imaginative, evocative. This seemed very... Yeah, really simple and clean and pared back. I think in some cases it, it was really pacey and, the you know, the chapters and the kind of within each of these six sections, there's like, I almost feel like she she tried to fit almost a bit too many kind of anecdotes ideas. and ideas into each chapter where she could have gone a bit more in depth and explored a few of them a bit more as opposed to like, oh, this is an example of, you know, my friend who is a famous writer and he said this and it kind of almost jumped around a bit more and she could have settled in with each of them and explored maybe mm. just one or two of the ideas in each chapter a bit more. So you thought it was a bit surface in some parts? Yeah. Hmm. Was there a section of the book you didn't understand or didn't like? Yes. Go on. I didn't like the way that she was quite dismissive of the notion of fear I got a strong sense that she had never experienced debilitating and paralyzing fear, anxiety or neuroses, which is a serious condition that we shouldn't sort of gloss over as just something that, you know, send on its merry way and um, write a, I think she writes a note to her fear that says, you know, fear, I'm packing my bags and I'm heading on a creative journey and you're no longer, you're not invited and or it was like, you can sit in the back seat, but you're not allowed to touch the wheel and I won't acknowledge you, but you will be there or something really Yeah, I, I just found the note to self on fear a little bit patronising for people who do have debilitating fear. Like every doctor in the country would surely be prescribing notes to self um, if that was the answer over Valium. And I just think that she... She says that she makes a decision as a child that just fear is boring and I'm going to move on. And it's just not a very meaningful account of anxiety. I mean, it doesn't ring true to any account of anxiety that I've ever sort of read or heard of. Yeah, I'd echo that. And the part that didn't sit well with me as well was when she she talked about those people who experience art making as a very painful and very serious pursuit and how maybe they're wrong and maybe that a lighter touch would have been the way to go for them. And I thought that is very dangerous territory. I don't think we need to question where people get their inspiration from. I mean, if it is stubborn gladness, then great. 
good on Elizabeth Gilbert. But if it is, you know, demons and it helps you to overcome some inner darkness, then also that's fine. Yeah. I think like whatever but floats your boat. She whatever. doesn't see darkness as a creative source at all. And I felt like she had such a hard line about it too. It wasn't. It was very dismissive. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of that anti-elitist thing again that she's like, you are not some talented, struggling person. You know, all these, evoking all these really famous, troubled artists and kind of, yeah, being quite dismissive of them and almost putting herself on the same level as them in a way. Like I think, mm. you know, we know through history, through the like Van Goghs and Virginia Woolfs and, you know, there there are some incredibly talented people who f- did wrestle with these demons and she can't – I don't think she – I don't give her permission to dismiss them in a way. And you if know. you use creativity to wrestle with demons, I think that's a great thing. And if you're inspired by this darkness to produce – beautiful work then who are we to admonish that as being a source of inspiration she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in that she was quite dismissive of i mean it's a bit different the american college system you know where you do pay a lot to go and you go into massive debt to go to college to get say a fine arts degree or you know a writing degree or something like that and she's She's very dismissive of that. I, I in in one sense, I kind of you know I liked the fact that she she firmly believes that you can get experience in that time without spending so much on your education, mm. and that I don't know. I, I think there is a lot to learn in those institutions and from older writers than you. And she's kind of like, no, I just you know I worked at a diner. I learn everything from myself and through hard work. And I was a bit. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would agree necessarily with that. I just think each to their own. And some people are going to respond better to a tertiary education or to um, being under the tutelage of sort of literary masters. And some people will thrive by being more of an anthropologist out there with a hmm. sort of notebook and, you know, watching people and observing them. I did find that this book was very, although it's about creative living, a lot of the key messages seem to be directed at writers or were most applicable to writers, which makes sense. I mean, she is a writer. But, I mean, it's not so easy for some professions like um, photography and filmmaking to just go out there and do it. Like the, um, It does require an education to learn about the equipment and to get a handle on sort of the trade and to even to have that gear available to you. It's not as easy as just, you know, scribbling something down on mm. a serviette in a diner. I found the, the persistence middle section, there were a few, or there was a few, there was a few parts in the middle that I thought she was being quite specific about, like, for example, when she was talking about throwing away a novel because it didn't suit and yeah. those things, which which totally goes against, like, I, I didn't really get her message because sometimes she's like, one of her life mottos, one of many was something like, done is better than good or done is better than perfect or something, which is yeah, essentially which like her mum's, which is her mum's motto of like, just just get it done and you'll be satisfied. And she's not a perfectionist. And that's why, you know, she can produce work. And and then, you know, only a few pages later, she's talking about throwing away a whole book because she didn't like it. Oh, yeah, And that was the other thing. So only a few pages before, she was talking about how she published a book where she didn't believe one of the main characters. And I thought, 
That's incredibly sloppy for an author to say that they published a book that they didn't even believe one of their own characters. I liked that bit, though, because she said, like she said, you're never going to get it perfect every single time. Sometimes you've got to just be done with it and move on. Mm. So that That anecdote sort of, it fitted with her idea that we can't all be perfectionists Mm. and it's more about the creative process. But then it didn't um, sit comfortably with her then saying, um, that yeah, she threw out the next novel because it just wasn't perfect. One thing I thought about this book as well is I felt like she was really defensive about herself as an author and her literary credentials because, you know, Eat, Pray, Love was not critically successful. It was a bestseller and, you know, it got made into the movie with Julia Roberts. But, it, you know, critically a lot of people and a lot of these kind of elitist, highbrow literary people would have completely dismissed it. And I felt like with a lot of the books, she was kind of defending herself and her right to be, you know, an an author that made a shitload of money and is really successful, but she's kind of trying to prove that she, she works really hard at it and she has these inspirations of, you know, these great heroes that everyone else does. No, I didn't get that at all. Not at all. I think... Because she says time and time again, she wrote that book for herself. She never expected herself to be a bestseller. She always had other jobs and writing was always just her hobby and her creative outlet. But do you find her kind of arrogant in the way that she says that as well? No. I think she's pretty uh, like, oh, I'm Elizabeth Gilbert. And I kept being like, I get it. I get it. You know, you've got all these famous friends and there's a lot of name dropping. (laughs) There was so much name dropping. (laughs) No, I was struck by how humble she was. (laughs) I was was and how dedicated she is to the mm. job. Yeah, I, mean, I and was struck She by says that. time and time again, dedication trumps talent. And the big three things that I took from this book was number one, lower your expectations. She has low expectations for every single book she puts up. Two, dedication trumps talent. And three, just do it. Don't talk about doing it. Just actually mm. go out there and do it. And I feel like... I love that. I wanted to just embrace it. I was like, I wish that I could be like that, but I am the perfectionist that I I felt that she was talking to in that section I liked it um the way that gender played into that idea of perfectionism and I think that that really rang true to me and if I can just like look at the passage she said that perfectionism is a particularly evil lure for women who I believe hold themselves to an even higher standard of performance than do men meanwhile putting forth work that is far from perfect rarely stops men from participating in the global cultural conversation just saying I don't say this as a criticism of men, by the way. I like that feature in men. Their absurd overconfidence, the way they will casually decide, well, I'm 41% qualified for this task, so give me the job. And that is so true. I mean, there are statistics out there that I think it says that men will apply for a job if they feel that they satisfy 40% of the selection criteria and women will apply if they feel they've satisfied 90% or Mm. more. It's a characteristic of women that I sort of identified Mm. with. Mm. There was another part. It it kind of plays into that as well that I really liked. Um, This is her talking about this old lady that she meets who's like 80 or something. And she said, 
we all spend our 20s and 30s trying so hard to be perfect because we're so worried about what people think of us. Then when we get into our 40s and 50s and we finally start to be free because we decide that we don't give a damn about what anyone thinks of us. But you won't be completely free until you reach your 60s and 70s when you finally realize this liberating truth. Nobody was ever thinking about you anyhow. And I really like that. It's kind of like, you know what? Everyone is so caught up in their own world and their own lives that they're not sitting around saying, oh my God, did you hear that Gabe is trying to write a manuscript? You know, everyone is kind of doing their own thing and you need to get over that fact that you, you kind of put on yourself that you're thinking that everyone else is thinking about you and fussing about your creative life because they're not. Yeah, no one really cares. You're your own self, worst enemy. So self-absorbed and everyone is, so... I can't pick a favourite passage because I have so many underlined pieces in here. But one of the parts I liked the best was she gives people permission not to give a shit about what people think because so much of what we create now produce is all online. People can weigh in at any point that they like. It's very hard to have a private vocation these days. And she said when she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, some people hated it, some people loved it. And she said the emotions from people varied from absolute hatred to blind adulation. And she writes, imagine if I'd tried to create a definition of myself based on any of these reactions. I didn't try. And that's the only reason Eat, Pray, Love didn't throw me off my path as a writer, because of my deep and lifelong conviction that the results of my work don't have much to do with me. I can only be in charge of producing the work itself. That's a hard enough job. I refuse to take on additional jobs, such as trying to police what anyone thinks about my work once it leaves my desk. And I loved that. And she said that when people attack you with vitriol, when they insult your intelligence, when they drag your name through the mud, she says, just smile sweetly and suggest as politely as you possibly can that they can go and make their own effing art. Yeah, I like the way that she tries to, um, I guess, give other people the license and courage to just not care. Yeah. Or and care less. And she says in one point as well, nobody ever died because I got a bad review in the New York Times or something like that. She's like, you know what? I put out a book that wasn't the best and so what? Okay, here's another bit. It starts by forgetting about perfect. We don't have time for perfect. In any event, perfection is unachievable. It's a myth and a trap and a hamster wheel that will run you to death. (sighs) So many parts. I found towards the end I started tabulating more. I sort of, I think I let go of my priggishness and my dismissiveness and just being like, oh, this is terrible. I'm reading like a self-help book about magical ideas and was like, actually, you know, she has some gold amongst the magic. The idea that you don't have to be passionate about something to do it. You just have to be curious. Because that word is so often thrown around by people trying to be helpful, saying, it's okay, just follow your passion. And she says that that is completely unhelpful and even a cruel thing to say to someone because not everyone has a passion and not everyone knows what it's going to be. So, yeah, curiosity is much more important. I just wish that she stripped the book of a lot of that kind of big magic fantasy and left the really really relatable stuff about the perseverance and at a really personal level there's a lot of you know good stuff in there but it's buried amongst this hocus pocus stuff it it just would have yeah i would have skipped all the eye rolling and just really found it a lot more relevant she doesn't give a shit what you think joe yeah that's true (laughs) she's just creating the work 
I don't want to be dismissive of the hocus pocus because she says authenticity is so important. It's more important than anything. And if that's her authentic self, then who are we to say, don't do it? Maybe I'm just too cynical. I don't know. I'm not saying I don't believe in the mysticism of art, though. I think it is mystical and amazing and wonderful and can be spiritual and that you can... But she takes it to the next level. Then let's review it. Would you shelf it, Gabe, or would you shove it? Okay, I'm going to be brutally honest, but um, I have a bookshelf that's sort of a bit hidden and I'll put it on my hidden bookshelf, the one that I'm like a little bit... The the one that you know friends won't come around and judge you like I do. When I go to someone's house and I look at their bookshelf and I think, oh, they've got Eat, Pray, Love on it. (laughs) Exactly. I don't want the self-help books on that bookshelf. So I'll put it on that bookshelf. So I'm going to shelf it because I think there were some great ideas in there and I actually found it really quite inspiring and, and as um someone who likes to write i think it yeah it did speak to me and i'll i think i'll actually go back to it what would you give it out of five 2.5 joe i think i'm going to shove it i judge other people in their bookshelves i don't want it on my own shelf i think i've taken from it what i can and i don't think i'm going to refer back to it but i i would also give it two and a half i think for for the parts that worked well i think worked pretty well and I, I, I did take a lot from it and I think yeah, especially that courage and the permission and as I said this year I've had a really great year because I did pottery and there was an older lady there who is probably in her early 70s and I remember at the beginning of our class she's like it's so humbling to be bad at something again after all these years and I've that really stuck with me so I've taken that permission and that courage on board and I'm going to stick with I'm going to take that from the book but I'm not going to keep the book (laughs) i'm going to give it a four because i found it enchanting i found it really really eye rolling at the start but by the end of it i was underlining passages and putting post-it notes all through it and thinking this is a really she has some fantastic messages in that and Mm. i found it really easy to read and i would shelf it and refer to it again good one excellent Well, I think we've magicked up the studio. Thank you very much for joining me, ladies. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to I Know What You'll Read This Summer. We hope you enjoyed Big Magic if you read it. Leave a note on our Facebook page. You can log on at Mamma Mia Podcast Network in Facebook or you can tweet us at Mamma Mia Podcasts and you can send hate emails and love emails to podcast at mamamia.com.au. This has been a show from the Mamma Mia Podcast Network. The full list of books in this series is on that Facebook page too or you can find it at mamamia.com.au. I've been Monique Bowley and thanks so much for reading along with me.